All right, a couple of questions for you guys before we get started. Who is the greatest musician of all time? Great. Wait, who did Matt say? Bob Dylan. He's up there. Actually, Rolling Stone said Bob Dylan was number two. Rolling Stone magazine said the Beatles are number one, Bob Dylan was number two, so Matt's not far off. Who is the most streamed artist of all time? The most streamed, some of you haven't been introduced to Spotify yet, the most streamed artist of all time is Canadian rapper Drake. There you go. Most record sales of all time? <laughs> Jordan Feliz, yes, he's going to be here in a couple weeks. No. Uh, most record sales of all times, all time, maybe one day Taylor Swift, it's the Beatles. Most concert tickets sold all time. Most concert tickets. Grateful Dead was a good guess. It's actually you too. You too. I have seen them twice. I saw them in Seattle. I saw them in Portland. Phenomenal. Absolutely amazing. But I have seen Need to Breathe. I know they're not on the same level. As far as ticket sales, to me though, just as impressive. Whose songs have been sung by more people than anyone in the history of the world? Britney Spears? <laughs> no, not Britney Spears. It's who the Bible refers to as the sweet psalmist. King David for over 3,000 years. His lyrics, his songs, what he has penned has touched the world for generations, for millennia. Cultures around the world in more languages than any other songwriter in history. Some people would argue that David's Psalms have had a bigger impact on the world than his reign as king of Israel. I love the importance that the Bible places on God's word. I love that David is so gifted with his words. He is the most prolific songwriter in history. Um, if you were here Sunday, when Dick Worthington was opening the service, he talked about how powerful music is. And he shared, researchers said that if you want to exercise your body, go to the gym. If you want to exercise your mind, you listen to music. Tim Keller says that he has a friend who is a professor at New York, uh, NYU, and he is kind of a self-proclaimed atheist, but he says, there's one stumbling block I have with atheism. I cannot figure out for the life of me when I go to the symphony how that could occur by accident. It just doesn't seem possible that that could be arranged by accident. So music and these words that we get from King David in the Psalms and throughout the Bible, absolutely beautiful. So tonight we have in chapter 23, it's called David's final tribute, his last words, chronologically, not necessarily, but that's where it's referred to as in chapter 23 here of 2 Samuel. One more chapter we'll get to next week. So what are his final words? What is the last thing that he gives us here? We know he's had a lot of accomplishments. He's had a few failures. We know he's overcome a lot. He's very gifted He's a gifted military leader. He's a gifted political leader. He's a, he's a gifted artist. He's a great friend. So what does he mention in his final words? There's no recap of any of that. There's no renaming of the country, which was kind of common during 
some phases of our global history of mankind. There's no request for some Netflix documentary that would highlight all of his success. There's no plan for his kids to write his success to new some to some uh, new social media status. There's no plans for a statue. There's no gold jewel-filled sarcophagus. That wouldn't be uncommon considering Egyptian empires and how they celebrated their pharaohs. David's focus in his final words, there's two parts really that we're going to look at. It's God and it's his people. That's who, that's who David chooses to focus on. This first section, the first seven verses, will focus on prophecy, leadership, covenantal love, the coming kingdom, coming judgment. And if you think about lasting final words, these are the things that David wants us to know. Chapter 23, let's look at verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who is raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Really this man being the one from Jesse who was really raised from obscurity. He was overlooked. Nobody thought that this would be the one who would be the king. God had different plans. Verse two, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Again, this is a prophetic Voice. It's from the Lord. David wants us to know that. One author put it this way. As David writes the words that God gives him, he always ends up repeating what God has spoken to him. So God speaks, David writes. We read, hopefully we repeat. God is glorified. Mankind is encouraged, strengthened with the sword, with the word. Another author put it this way. Faithful people take pleasure in calling to mind what they have heard from God, in recalling God's word and repeating it in their minds. And so what God spoke once, David heard twice. Good practice for us as believers. I know some people can kind of scoff and say, oh, it's kind of legalistic to do this. But as I was reading through this, God has been impressing something on my heart that I haven't necessarily needed because of the amount of time I've spent in God's word, but I know how valuable it is for my family. And also I don't want to get lazy. And so we as a family have with this new school year, I know a lot of you guys do this. You have little kids, you're homeschooling. We're going back to scripture memorization. We just said, Hey, okay, it's a new year with three kids going out into the schools again. We want to be reminded in this new year that God has given us his word and it is truth. And so we're just picking a scripture. We're just memorizing it all week. If you, have, if you used to do that and you've stopped doing that, I would encourage you to do it. Do it with a friend, a family member, your, your kids, your spouse, a coworker. Pick a verse, memorize it for a week. Text each other. I hear a lot of guys say, I'm not really a reader. I'm not really built like that. That's not really my thing. I promise you, your brain is capable of way more than you give it credit for. You can remember song lyrics. If you're like me, you can remember rosters and stats from the 80s of Super Bowls and basketball tournaments. And some of you guys know the ins and outs and names for every single type of car part or whatever it is. You can memorize scripture and you'll find a moment where somebody's talking to you about something 
And out of nowhere, you've experienced this. God just brings these words to your mouth that you just, blah, I forgot I had that in there. And then somebody's encouraged by it and they're blessed. Verses three and four starts to focus on and look at godly leadership. But really, this is for all of us. We should all be thinking of ourselves as godly representation, as leaders wherever we're at. It says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he draws on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. Ruling in the light of God. The morning with hope and potential. The warm sun shining, again, bringing light and direction and potential. Even the rain when there is no sun, refreshing and vital to this sprouting grass that he's talking about. Again, just a picture of hope and potential. And really, it's just a a really peaceful, hope-filled picture that we get, which is really what godly leadership should be. Jesus gives us the the ultimate example of what this looks like in John chapter 10. He says, I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Like he can go out where I've got the safe space for life for my sheep as their shepherd. Life, freedom, protection. But he goes on to say in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Godly leadership brings that. Christian leaders should be looking for opportunities wherever they're at to bring hope, to bring potential, life, freedom, security, safety, encouragement, all the while delivering truth with grace and confidence. If we look at Christian rulers throughout history, nations prosper when there's Christian leaders. There's freedom, there's equity, equity, there's opportunity, there's generosity, and we need godly leaders to not shy away from these opportunities as husbands, as moms, in the home, in the church, in the community, in the workplace, politics. Again, says in Proverbs, in the righteous rule, the people rejoice. Verse five, David shifts to this covenantal love that is, he's referencing back to the Davidic covenant. Second Samuel chapter seven, he says, for does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? David, got, David says, God made an everlasting covenant with me. In fact, Let's take a look at that in chapter seven. This is what he's referring to. He says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The Davidic covenant.
Sorry, let me find my spot here. I'm trying the, the iPad so I don't have to wear glasses. I'm trying to avoid that at all costs these days. David is reminding his readers that God has made an everlasting promise. Knowing his failures in, his, in advance, God is the one who's made this possible. An everlasting promise, his idea, his doing, his sustaining. It's been God this whole time. And he says, I'm securing it because God did it. It's God's covenant. This is his, co- his kingdom that will come. God is the one who will cause this to prosper. And then he says in verse six and seven, he, he makes a reference to evil. He says in verse uh, six here, but worthless men. If you have King James, it says sons of Belial are like thorns that are thrown away for they cannot, take it, cannot be taken away with hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with the iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. End of the day, he says, listen, I see it's a battle of good and evil. And I'm not going to pretend like this world doesn't have evil. I'm going to do something about it. There's eternity, there's temporal things, and there's a line of demarcation David says it's simple. You're either for God or you're against him. And there's a Psalm 73 from Asaph that makes reference to the wickedness of men in this world. And it says, this world is full of unjust people. I won't read the whole thing, but he says, I know God is good, but I see righteous men suffer and I see wicked men prosper and it causes my feet to slip. Perhaps you've seen that. Man, Lord, what is happening? I see these people that don't live a righteous life and yet it seems like they are blessed. Do you just not care at all about the evil in this world? But he says, listen, there's coming a day. There is coming a day where I will wipe this evil from this earth. It's prophetic. Again, it's from, it's from Revelation. But David also says, I know that you will establish your kingdom. It's inaugurated eschatology. Matt talks about it all the time. End times were inaugurated through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. But the kingdom is in the process of being established already, not yet. Evil will be gone one day. And that's what David is reminding us. So this section starts off, it's from David, adulterer, liar, murderer. He knows a great, that grace is available to all. And he knows Psalm 51, 17 well, a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. Forgiveness is not far from any one of us. <clears throat> so, what's really cool is what happens next with David's mighty men, beginning in verse 8. These mighty men that we hear about here in verse 8, we're going to get a little recap of how they lived their life. David's closest men. We're first introduced to them in 1 Samuel 22. Saul is hunting down the future King David. David goes on the run, he's hiding in the wilderness. He's surrounded by hundreds of men. It says that everyone who was there was in distress. They were in debt. They were bitter in soul. And they rallied around David. Just, we've got nothing. We're here for you. Some of these guys were just little little guys, young men, when David was out there on the battlefield against Goliath. They were able to witness that. We pick it up here in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, Atakmanite, he was chief of the three. He wielded a spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. 
One man, verse 800, kills them all. Verse nine, and next to him, the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahoi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. Interesting. They left. It's David and Eleazar. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. If you've ever had, I mean, during college, I remember I had a landscaping job, worked at a mill, worked in landscaping. I was a low man on the totem pole. It would be hot during the summer. I was the one who had like the pickaxe. I'd have to like all day long just pounding that thing through the rocks. Maybe you've done work around the house. You've, you just know that feeling where you're just, it's stuck to you. And it says some of these guys would be gripping their swords so tightly in these battles when, they were, when their corpses were laying there in the battlefield, they'd actually have to get warm water and pour it over their hands to peel them off their swords. You can imagine fighting three, 800 men. You've got this sword, you're gripping it. This is also referred to in 1 Chronicles 11. It's David and Eleazar. And the field's called Ephes Domin. There was a lot of battles there. Ephes Domin, it's interesting, means boundary of blood or border of blood or land of blood. And it's also interesting because the Philistines were never allowed to actually make it through this one boundary of blood. Time after time we read about these battles, it says the Lord delivered them. The Lord delivered them. The Lord delivered them. Eliezer, fighting against impossible odds with King David, right there, gripping his sword next to the king, trusting the sword. And of course, for us, we get the imagery here. Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is a double-edged sword. The Bible talks a lot about battle and using God's word as a sword. In this battlefield, Ephes Domin, this boundary of blood-bought land, is where they would have so many victories. Verse 11, next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord again worked a great victory. Verse 13, great story. Three more of the 30 chief men they went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went to risk their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Interesting story here. So David has just become king. The Philistines are camped at Rephaim. The goal was for the Philistines to drive right through the center of Israel 
They were afraid that David, this new king, would create a stronger nation even than what Saul had. And so they don't want to waste any time. They're coming in to just disrupt things right away. So they bisect the north and the south. They occupy this valley. They are occupying the city of Bethlehem. They're just a few miles from Jerusalem. David, who at one point had been on the run from Saul, was in the same area. And now he is back with his mighty men. Back where he started, in this wilderness, in this cave. It's harvest time. The Philistines came during harvest. They wanted to starve Israel, topple the new king, and shut down this new kingdom. And verse 15, it says something really interesting. It says, David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. He like, it's almost like this sigh. <sighs> He's thinking back to his city. Why though? There's water in the cave. David's really saying something different. David's down. He's discouraged. He's losing hope. He's fearful. He's wondering. Maybe he's wondering back to, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Maybe he's wondering back to the promise of this Davidic covenant, Davidic covenant he had with God. David has got to be sitting there thinking, listen, I haven't even taken the throne yet. How will I have a throne that can be established forever? I'm done. I, I'm not even getting this thing off the ground. Ah. How can God heal the world, conquer evil, establish a new kingdom? All these promises. I can't even get this kingdom off the ground. I'm trapped again like I was before. It would appear that David's new reign is doomed, that it was a temporary thing. Oh, that I would drink from that well in my city, but instead I've been driven from it. David has lost confidence that God was going to fulfill this promise, that God would actually use him. David wanted to drink of his kingdom. David wanted to see God's kingdom established. David wanted Psalm 27, 13 to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Anybody ever been in that spot personally? God, I thought this was going to happen. It seemed to me like this was how your plan was going to unfold. Anybody ever felt like you were trapped in a cave and you just couldn't move and you're questioning everything? The Bible says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's not easy. The Bible says Christianity isn't a cakewalk. It's hard. One of Matt's 10 things that he reminds us as a staff is, hard's not bad. But ministry is hard. Whether you're King David or whether you're us in 2022, man, listen, I've had seasons like this where I feel like I'm in the cave where the, the enemy is separating me from the coming kingdom and I'm thirsting for him, but I can't seem to get him. I've had some battlefields in my life, man. I was just thinking back to some really tough wilderness moments. In 07 and 08, we lost a few family members and uh, we were just coming out of a, you know, many of you too, a church that had recently collapsed. I had lost a couple students as a teacher and coach. 
I was going through a dark time, man. I was just driving to work every morning. Just, I clung to the promise that God's word says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I just listened to uh, Christian radio nonstop. I'd read my Bible every morning. Sometimes I wouldn't feel it, but I'm like, God, I just know that you've got to come through. Your word promises it. 2017, 2018, my wife and I doing family and youth ministry, there was four local students that died in about eight months and we were on campus moments after each one. And those things just like, oh man. And to be honest, the last couple of years have been hard for all of us. 2020 to 2021, man, there were death, suicides, closures, isolation. I lost a couple of very close mentors and colleagues One of my groomsmen lost his men. There was wrecked marriages, hurting families, kids in this community that I just kept hearing about just getting run over, neglected, taken advantage of. We're still feeling some of those residuals. I've had too many phone calls from chaplains, even like on my, trying to celebrate my daughter's birthday or uh, family get-togethers or traveling and just, you get this phone call and you're like, ah, And through it all, God was reminding me, listen, we need to hold the things of this world loosely. Your home projects, your home repairs, your jobs, your how you think school should go right now, how you think businesses should go, politics, life, ministry. There's eternity to think about, Carrie. Don't hold this life so tight. Listen, the well at Bethlehem, it's not it. It's not it. Fear, past failures, the unknown can trap every single one of us in those caves. We can feel like God's kingdom will not be established because of that trapping. But avoiding these battlefields will not quench our thirst. God says, only I can do that. These fields, Ephes Domin, were blood-bought. I had the victory, Jesus says. The enemy cannot take that ground. This is your blood-bought battlefield. Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through Christ. These mighty men in verse 16 are so awesome. It says these three men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well at Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. Those are the kind of friends you need. Now, we just read that, but we don't understand how difficult that was. They took a water skin, they grabbed some weapons, they slip out in the middle of the night without anybody noticing. The gate was at the top of a hill. A garrison had 20 plus men in it. So there are three of them, they're outnumbered. One of them has got to fill the water while the other two are fighting 20 guys. And they come back. They return and they said, my Lord, you wanted water. At first you can read this and you go, David just dumped it out? What? Why would he do that? No way. But I can just imagine that these type of guys, David dumps it out. It's it's an offering to the Lord Imagine how that would electrify these men. I can just see them just like, yeah, we went in, three of us, through these Philistines. 
We went in and got what we wanted. We brought it back and we offered it up to the Lord. I, 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 can, I can just picture the rest of the guys going, this is no problem. We got it. We had a, a summer camp a, a few years ago and we played this game. Um, well, some of you probably don't want to know this, but you put a Band-Aid on somebody's forehead and you have to run around and rip the Band-Aid off and it gets kind of crazy. Yeah, big giant field and all the kids are running around and there is this, there is this one boy who was bigger than everybody else and he was running around and he was ripping the Band-Aids off and it got down to him and a girl and we stopped the game and everybody brings him out and we're like, okay, here we go. It's down to these final two. And he, he runs over to her and he rips his Band-Aid off and he grabs her hand and he raises it up. And the whole, everybody's just like, yeah! You know, just everybody's just excited. And, and like, I picture that same thing. It's like, there's a bigger picture here. There's something more that we can take from this. David goes on to defeat these Philistines, establish his reign as king. David, this warrior king, the Bible talks a lot about God as a warrior, and David talks at the beginning of this. He hints about God not gonna, he's not, God's not gonna sit back and be okay with evil. We have a warrior God who does not stand for evil, nor should we. Ephesians 6 reminds us to put on the armor of God to stand against the enemy, ready for battle. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, it's not peace, but I'm bringing a sword. But what's really cool is Jesus's picture of how we're supposed to live this out. We get a little glimpse or a hint at the way God reinvents the idea of warfare. Jesus introduces his, in, his upside down kingdom in the way he does things. And David gives us a little glimpse of this. He refuses to drink it, number one. Number two, he pours it out. In this moment, he doesn't give these guys the glory for what they did. David turns the glory from them to God. He pours it out. He says the glory is all God's. All of your great accomplishments, all of my greatest accomplishments, he says it's just a gift. We're going to give it right back to God. All of our abilities, all of our successes, it all is because of our God. Even if you outworked them, your work ethic was from God. Even if you were a bigger, stronger soldier, that is because it came from God. And he pours it out. He says, these are the kind of things that you can't hold on to. We give this right back to our Lord. David ends up pointing to the one that they really need to follow. He says, it's the Lord's victory. There's one, listen guys, I appreciate your loyalty. I appreciate you coming and doing this. But listen, there's one who's greater than me. And we're gonna, we're gonna pour it out for him. Your ultimate allegiance is not to me, but to our king. Here's what we know about King Jesus. David didn't get to see this. There's another one that Jesus says, thirst. There was a woman who came for water at the well and Jesus reminded her that that's not gonna do it. I have a kingdom that will quench that thirst. You're not gonna find satisfaction in a man. You're not gonna find satisfaction in this world. You're not gonna find satisfaction in relationships. There's a kingdom that satisfies. Jesus himself said, like David, that he thirsted as well. Jesus, Jesus said, I thirst as he hung on the cross, betrayed, beaten, bloodied. 
He said, I thirst. Jesus girded himself up like a warrior. He went to defeat evil. He didn't risk his life. He gave his life so that we could live, so that we could be filled with his spirit, so that we could live in his kingdom and have purpose and mission. Jesus took power by losing power. Jesus got glory by losing glory. Jesus became commander by serving, not by taking. Jesus hated evil too, but Jesus doesn't devastate people where evil resides. Jesus devastates evil. There's a lot of Christians and churches at times that kind of take a soft stance and don't want to talk about evil and don't want to address it. God hates evil. He hates it. And Jesus' battle against it looks different, but he hates it. Jesus will not, or God will not let evil go. He will not let it just be. He is aggressive against it, as should we be. But Jesus, unlike me, is able to separate the evil from the evildoer. That is hard to do. Jesus destroys evil through serving, sacrificing, and loving those in whom evil dwells. I struggle with that. Romans 12, 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, do everything that you can to live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, God says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. Not yours, Carrie, it's mine. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by doing good. Almost exactly one year ago, there was a large organization that had a training. And there was a speaker from the Portland area who came here to speak about um, LGBTQ community. And in their presentation to these employees, they referenced Edgewater and our senior pastor and made ridiculous, absurd, wild claims about our church and about our senior pastor just absurdities, just like childish things. And my phone was blowing up from people that were in this meeting. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. This is all, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I could feel myself just, oh, boiling. Matt is not my king, but Matt's my brother. 
And I could feel myself just wanting to just like get in my car, drive down there and just confront this person. I was so furious. And in the midst of all of that, I was sitting in my backyard having a conversation with somebody. It was so surreal, you guys. Like, I could never orchestrate this in a million years. It was only God that could have done this. I was sitting in my backyard talking with a former youth group student who had come out as gay. This person had been living with their new partner for like the last six months. They came to my house. I was like one of the first three people that they contacted. The other two people went to Edgewater. We hadn't talked to them, uh, to this person for a while. Came to my house in tears that they had been betrayed, cheated on. They were just confused about how somebody could hurt them and rip their heart out like this. And they wanted some support, some direction, some encouragement. And they told me who they went and talked to first. It was another couple here at Edgewater. And then they talked to another youth leader. And then they, they were talking to me all just like immediately. And, and when that person left, I was just like absolutely still furious about the text messages that I was getting. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And my wife was like, no, I think we've done it. And I was just like, what? And she's like, don't you see what just happened? Like, that is how we win in this kingdom. The lost and hurt and broken are coming to our home. They're knocking on our door. They're not zipping in four hours away from their hometown, preaching to everybody about how they're supposed to live, and then leaving and not actually walking with people through the hard, difficult things that we're doing. We're not making big fancy videos and speaking all over about all these things that you're supposed to do and then just neglecting to actually care for and walk with people through difficult times. That's what we're doing here. That's what you are doing here at Edgewater. That's what we do in this community. That's why it's such a blessing to be a part of this church. Here's story after story of people doing the hard, difficult thing, not looking for attention, not blasting it everywhere, not preaching to people, but actually just loving God's people. I think that's a glimpse of what Jesus is trying to teach us about how we're supposed to overcome evil in this world. <clears throat> now here's the difference between people who have a relationship with God and, and people who just view God as a boss. You can look at God as like a loving father. You can look at him as a boss. And as a boss, you just say, give me the checklist. I'll do what I can. Hopefully there's more good than there is evil. But when you look at God as a loving father, you're listening for that sigh. You're listening for that, oh, that I could drink from that well in Bethlehem. Oh, God, what is it that you want to see happen in this world, in your kingdom? David never said, hey, somebody go get me some water. These guys were paying attention to the king. They responded out of love when they heard that sigh. It moved them to bless their king. I hope we walk that closely with our king. That we're able to pick up 
the sigh, the oh, that I had this well to drink from. They had a genuine relationship with their king built not on rules, but ultimately what it was built on was time together, a closeness. They could truly hear what he was saying when he said, oh, the well, they knew. Man, David, I got you. I got you. Verse 18, now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was the chief of the 30, and he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30. He became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. We've got a long list of guys here. We'll get through them right now. Benaiah, the son of Jehoadai, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. Some of you are saying, you know what? I think it would be easier to go into a pit and try to strike down a lion in the snow than it would be to forgive and love in God's kingdom. I get that. I get that. Verse 21, he struck down an Egyptian. The Bible is so funny. A handsome man, he struck him down. Even handsome men die too. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoadai, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Ashael, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shema of Harad, Elika of Harad, Halez the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiezar of Anahath. Some of you are saying, why are we reading these? If your name was in the mighty men of God, I would hope that somebody somewhere would read them. So, Halez the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh. Verse 27, Abiezar of Anahath, Mebunai the Hushathite, Zalmon the Ahahite, Maharai, Netapath. The great thing about this is you guys don't know if I'm saying I'm right or wrong. Heleb, <laughs> you just say it with confidence. Nobody knows. Heleb, the son of Banah of Netapath. Etai, the son of Ribai of Gibeah, the people of Benjamin. Benaiah of Pirathon. Hediah, the brooks of Gash. Abi, Elban, the Arbathites. Asmaveth of Bahurim. Eliabah, the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashin. Jonathan. Shama the Hararite, Ahayim the son of Sharar the Hararite, Eliaphalet the son of Ahasabah of Maka, Eliam the son of Ahithapel the Gilanite, Hezro of Carmel, Paarai the Arbite. Matt assigns these chapters. He's probably laughing right now. <clears throat> Egal the son of Nathan of Zobah, Benai the Gadite, Zelik the Ammonite, Naharai of Beroth, the armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruai, Ira the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Listened. Yes. Good job, guys. <laughs> Listen, just in closing, I just want to leave you with this. Listen, these guys, they faced impossible odds. 800 men, 300 men, a lion in a pit in the snow, the Philistines driving them into the wilderness. The Lord delivered them every time. We have the same goal from the enemy, and that is to keep Jesus' kingdom from being fulfilled. These guys were bent on God's kingdom being established. 
David beats a giant. Um, two beat 20 plus guys for water, 800 killed, 300 killed. Listen, how'd they do that? How'd they do that? There are people in this body who have faced things that seem just as insurmountable. I've sat with people who've wailed at the loss of loved ones multiple times. I've talked with people who faced battles they would never choose. I sat with a guy right over here last summer in one of these chairs who was days away from dying and he just wanted to be in God's house, he said. I know people here in this body who've lost physical battles they were never gonna win. These people became mighty. What I see from this is these people stayed close to the king. They stayed close to the king. In the blood-bought land, they were right by the king. Whether it's through his word, through prayer, through gathering, stay close to the king. They showed up. Man, they just woke up. They dusted themselves off. They took a shower. They got some food. They readied themselves for battle. Parents, sometimes like our hardest battle is just like getting up and facing the day and saying, I'm going to be the godly leader, husband or wife or parent or father or friend or employee or boss that God needs me to be today. Show up. It's hard. Trust me, I know. It's hard. They trusted their sword. These mighty people trust their sword. And the craziness of distractions and being pulled every which direction they trusted their sword. They pulled out the word of God. They read it. They believed it. They trusted it. And they lived it. They trusted their sword. And they stayed humble. They just gave God the glory. Man, 2 Corinthians 15.10 just rings more and more true for me every day. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I just pray that his, Paul says that his grace towards me was not in vain. I just don't want to waste that grace. I don't want to waste it. If I could just encourage you guys, man, please stay close to the king. Show up for the battle. Trust your sword and stay humble. Father God, I pray that we would be encouraged by your word. We know the battle is yours. I pray whatever cave we might find ourselves in, we would know that that land and that battle has been blood bought by the cross of Jesus Christ. Because of you that... We are more than conquerors and we, we give you thanks, Father God, that one day evil will be no more, that revelation will be a reality. There won't be any more tears, there won't be any more suffering, that your kingdom will be permanently established and we will rule and reign with you forever. We thank you for that promise. Pray that you would bless the rest of this night in Jesus' name, amen.